I got 9.31 on my calendar, so it's definitely time to get started. Thanks for being on time. I'll go ahead and open us in prayer. We're going to be talking about finances this morning and for a few other weeks. Hope that's a uh, beneficial topic for everyone, but especially as we have some kids here, I thought it'd be something that's fitting for them as well. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. We see um, finances as an important stewardship, and I say that uh, not because of my own opinion about it, but because of how much Jesus discusses it and the, the Bible in general. And for the Bible to give so much attention to something tells us that it's significant. Help us to manage our finances well. I don't pray that we would be rich or poor, but that we would manage our, our money in ways that bless you and honor you and hopefully allow us to provide well for our families. And thank you for this time, Lord. Help me, help me to equip your people, bless the discussion that takes place as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good to see all these. So, yeah, with the kids joining us for some more, uh, not, not sure how much longer we're working on some things with child uh, protection for our church to have in place before we start a discussion about going back to the classes the way they were. And so plan on us having uh, the kids with us for a while. I'll keep talking about finances, and then we might even talk about parenting. And we have some other stuff we're entertaining. But at least for a few weeks, we'll continue talking about finances. And I hope that the kids can be attentive and, and learn as well. Generally, people get really serious about managing their money well when they're older and kind of waste it when they're younger. So hopefully some kids would be... Um, prevented from doing that, making some of the mistakes that maybe some of us as adults have made. So I intended to preach this about maybe about a month ago, but then George was born a week early, and so I thought I had another week with you guys. Katie's normally delivers after her due date, but she was about a week early, and so I didn't get to deliver this sort of part two to part one. So since it has been a month, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do a little bit of review from that first uh, message. Some of you might remember it. It was about spending problems versus income problems. I don't think most of us, and this is probably the case for almost everyone in the United States, have income problems. It's not to say there aren't some people that have income problems, but most of us have spending problems. In other words, we would uh, do just fine if we could change the way that we spend our money. And so I listed some of, the, some of the problems for us, some of the spending problems. Does anyone remember any by chance? And if not, not a big deal, but thought I would ask. Anyone remember some of the spending problems? What do spending problems result from? One thing, the first one, and remember? What? Selfish. Oh, selfish. I need to list that. that was a real, that's a definitely a good one, though. That's kind of an affects all of them. Uh, we're typically buying stuff that we want to satisfy our covetousness. So I said small purchases that add up. Small purchases that add up. They're easier to make, easier to uh, justify. And the next one was worthless purchases. Small or spending problems often result from worthless purchases. And if you remember, and I think this is an important point, I don't necessarily mean worthless and that the purchase itself has no value. I consider a purchase worthless if it has no value to the purchaser. And so what I, the way to determine essentially whether a purchase has been wasted for you is whether that purchase has any value for you a few weeks or months down the road. How many times have you bought something and then like never done anything with it? Even if it's fairly, thank you for those of you who have the humility. That's, I'm in that category. There are definitely things I've bought and then weeks or months down the road, you know, done absolutely nothing with those purchases. That means it's a worthless purchase for me. And so spending problems often result from worthless purchases, which are those things we buy that we never end up using or doing anything with. Even if it would have benefited someone else, it's still worthless for us. And then self-entitlement. This is what Dorothy mentioned. So I guess maybe I did have this one. Spending problems result from self-entitlement. We, what, are, what do we tell ourselves? What's probably the most common thing we tell ourselves that allow us to make purchases that we probably shouldn't? There you go, yeah. I deserve this. I have, I have earned this. I have worked this hard, or I've put up with this, or I've suffered this much. Any number of things we can tell ourselves that call, cause us to feel justified in making those purchases. And I gave a couple of biblical examples of, uh, well, the reverse is for all of the all of these spending problems, but we looked at a couple examples of individuals who were very entitled so we could learn from them. And so one example was Eve. Eve was entitled. The devil caused her to be entitled by saying, does anyone remember what he said to her that would cause her to be entitled? You know, yeah, God doesn't want you to have that. He doesn't want you to, your eyes to be opened. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know good and evil. Basically, you should have this. You deserve it. He caused Eve to feel entitled, and that's what allowed her to eat the fruit. Amnon, 
Jonadab, his friend. Amnon was sinfully lusting after his his, uh, half-sister Tamar. And Jonadab, uh, which was Amnon's evil friend, came to him and said, hey, you're the king's son. You know, you should not be getting thinner and thinner every day like this. You should have what you want. If you want a relationship with her, you should have her. He caused, Jonadab caused Amnon to feel entitled, and then he had his way with her. Ahab was entitled. Uh, I believe his wife, Jezebel, caused him to be entitled. He was not going to get Naboth's vineyard, comes home, turns his face against the wall, won't eat, and his wife Jezebel comes to him and says, hey, look, you're the king of Israel. You should have this if you want it. And so then she goes out and orchestrates you know, her, her fingerprints are all over this plan to secure Naboth's vineyard by having him murdered, but she caused, Naboth, she caused Ahab to feel entitled. And we need to be, one of the other things we talked about is being aware of self-entitlement from any source. Many times people could actually um, mean well. They could be trying to help us, and they could cause us to be entitled out of even concern. They, they want us, let's say, to be happy, and so they are the ones who are telling us. We don't mean not to tell ourselves that we deserve it. We have other people telling us that we deserve it. And then one of the other ones, spending problems result from impatience. Uh, typically, we, instead of saying, I deserve this, the other thing is we say, I want this now. I don't want to wait for it. Most of the purchases that we make that we regret are ones that we made very impatiently. We just didn't want to wait for something. We want, I have to have it now. We buy it now. And so that's spending, worth, spending problems result from impatience. And we talked about a premier example of impatience in the Bible I think is Esau. He really wanted, there's kind of two ways Esau's impatience is shown. Two ways Esau's impatience is shown. Do you remember? He, when the Bible talks about the benefits of patience, Esau is definitely someone who could have benefited from greater patience. How is Esau's impatience shown to his detriment? Jake? Yep, and that's the, the most obvious one. He's like, I just want food. I don't care what I have to give up for it. I'm going to die, which wasn't true. Very melodramatic. So here, take my birthright. And so how's his, what's the other way his impatience is shown? This is a little tougher. Chris? Yes, because his birthright was not benefiting him at that moment. It would in the future. In other words, he was impatient. He didn't have the patience to wait to enjoy his birthright. A lot of application for us as Christians is there's a lot we're not enjoying that we have in Christ right now, an inheritance, or, but we will enjoy it later, but sometimes we're willing to kind of disregard what we have in Christ because we don't see a benefit right at this moment. So that's how else Esau's impatience was shown, that he wouldn't wait to enjoy his birthright. So that was pretty much this, the major points from the first message a month ago. Any thoughts or anything to add before we start moving into this morning's message? which I guess I would title, how do we, spend, how do we know when to spend money? Because we do need to spend money. If we talked a lot about avoiding spending problems, how do we know when we should spend money? That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So we must spend money. Uh, there are times when we, um, there's just no way around it. I mean, there's things we need in this life. And so the question becomes, well, how do we know when we should spend money? The solution isn't to never spend anything. And I want to first suggest this. Regardless of how attractive something is or looks to you or how good of a deal you think you're getting, if it involves, and I'll probably talk about debt in a future, look at some verses about that, look at debt in a future Sunday school teaching, but if it involves introducing debt into your life, very, um, very unlikely that God is going to, it would be God's will for you to make that purchase. I don't want to go too, too far down that, that rabbit trail, but you can almost be guaranteed that if it involves introducing debt into your life, there are some circumstances, perhaps because of an emergency or some medical bill, you have to, you know, you don't have the money for it and you have to put it on the credit card or something like that. I'm leaving some room for that. But most of the debt that we introduce into our lives is not because of extenuating circumstances like that. And so if you have to introduce debt, you can almost be guaranteed that it's not going to be God's will for you. So here's the first, first piece of uh, advice or tip I'd give you is to wait two weeks wait, try to wait two weeks. And if you really want to be certain about a purchase, wait four weeks. Anyone guess why I say that? To wait two weeks before purchases? Yeah, you'll get, you'll often, you'll get to find out, as Patty said, if you don't really need it. Where else can you wait two weeks? Jake? All right, go ahead, Jake, and then I'll get Francis. Yeah. 
you'll overcome what we talked about, one of the major spending problems, which is that initial, I have to have this right at this moment. You'll get past that and be able to make a more logical, reasonable decision. Francine, this is, I think I know what you're going to say, and this is good. Go ahead. <laughs> it slipped out a little early, but I want everyone else to hear it. Okay, so Francine said that it'll give you time to wait and see if God really wants you to have it. And then apparently part of, and Francine said that you'll, so God might provide it some other way. So one of the things Francine is praying is that they don't have to buy it, that someone will give it to them. That's part of, no, I'm just, I was just a joke. <laughs> I thought that was, I guess I misunderstood. I'm just joking. But yeah, just praying maybe God supplies it. That's happened with us, especially with uh, baby stuff. We actually have so many strollers. I'll, I'll give Katie a hard time and be like, "Do we? Re- how many more strollers do we need here? And it's not because we're buying them. It's because they're given to us. And so, yeah, it, sometimes it could look like we should buy a crib or something and it ends up finding one for free on Facebook or someone just gives, gives them to us. So, uh, Dorothy, nice and loudly, please. Hmm, that's good. What, what, I don't remember, I don't want to take credit for this. In fact, your husband might have been the one who said this, so forgive me if I'm stealing this from you, Andrew, but what's the enemy of best? Good. Typically the, typically the biggest enemy of best is good. The enemy of best is not often bad or evil. That's not usually what we're contending with. We're usually contending with good. We're usually settling for good versus best. So we're usually tempted by good versus best. And if we can generally push through or, or endure long enough to make it past good, then we can often experience God's best. Definitely tempting many times to give in much earlier than that. Good is the biggest enemy of best. So yeah, this is a practical way in our home when my children or Katie want something or I'm entertaining buying something, we're committed to waiting two weeks, sometimes four weeks, especially if it's a big... Oh, Katie? We did, I'll talk about that. I have that as an example a little later in this to talk about our van, okay? Okay. So uh, waiting a few weeks, two weeks, but I would recommend even four weeks if you want to be sure you want to make that purchase or that you, you still need it. Um, you don't have to buy, apply this, obviously, for everything that you buy. The lower price stuff, you, know, you don't need to apply this, but I would say that the lower the price that you do apply this, the better chance you won't end up purchasing things that, that you regret. Uh, many times when we don't buy something and wait a few weeks, we can look back and say, I'm really glad that I didn't buy it. And that regret, the regret we normally have over bad purchases typically occurs within the first couple weeks. Normally when we say, I, re- I regret buying that, it occurs within those first two weeks. So if you can wait past that, you'll have a much better indication of whether you should buy it. Second, so number one, wait two or more weeks. Number two, don't misunderstand good deals. Don't misunderstand good deals. I, don't, I hope I'm not the only one that notices this. Have you ever noticed that when you want to buy something, it just seems like suddenly there's an incredible amount of good deals available for that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's the biggest coincidence in the world that you want to buy something and suddenly everyone has it on sale. Everyone is trying to get rid of theirs and now it's like, well, that's, not, that's just good marketing that surrounds us. You, you didn't just happen to very fortunately you know, be the one person in the world who wanted to buy this right when it went on sale at every store across the nation. When you want something, you're looking for it, you're, you're very sensitive to deals, and it's very easy to think you're getting a good deal when, when you're actually not. It is not a coincidence. Um, I was a business major in college, 20, I graduated in 2000, so over 20 years ago, I don't remember a ton of stuff from my, from my uh, college. Uh, I haven't used my business degree very much. I do remember some marketing classes and all good marketers, anyone that stays in business, can make people feel like they are getting a good deal. Anyone think of a proverb that deals with this? Anyone think of the proverb? Jim, you've quoted it before. Here it is. Do you remember it? Yep. It's good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he's gone his way, then he boasts. It's good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he's gone his way, then he boasts. Proverbs 20:14, which is you come up and you act like it's not worth anything. Then you go away boasting that you got this really good deal. So we try to spend less money by complaining to the seller that the item's not worth the price. After we buy it, we go and we brag to our friends about the good deal we've gotten on that. 
And I think most of us can relate to that, probably in two ways. We have probably went and boasted to people, and maybe it'll sound in a moment like I'm boasting about our deal on our van, so maybe I'm a victim of this too. Uh, and then we probably had people boast to us about the good deal that they said they got on stuff. And at least a couple times I've heard people talk about a good deal, and they didn't ask me my thoughts, so I didn't tell them. I'm glad they didn't, because if I had to be honest, I would have told them they got ripped off. But I've had to just kind of think in my mind, just smile and nod and say, okay, well, at least they feel like they got a good deal. I'm pretty convinced that they didn't get a good deal. But we generally think we're getting a good deal because we're looking for stuff and there's good marketers out there. You'll hear things like, um, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You wouldn't believe the deal that I got on this. Rarely do people ever come and tell you that they got ripped off. So you just want to be careful that you're actually getting a good deal, which kind of brings us to our next, our, the next piece of advice. How can you tell when you are getting a good deal? Because there are good deals. It's not to say that there are never good deals. There are good deals, and what's one of the, what, how are you going to know when there's really a good deal? What, Chuck? When you're educated. When you're educated, that's correct. Yeah, so just to do your research to... Sp- Mr. Farnell. <laughs> Okay, now this is, how many years of marriage now? 55. Okay, so that's counsel from 55, that's advice from 55 years of marriage right there. If your wife says it's a good deal, then it's a good deal. So I don't know if that applies to all the husbands in here. (laughs) Careful husbands, you know, uh, some of you might be more frugal than your wives, but in the Farnell home, Mr. Farnell is confident that Mrs. Farnell knows when something is a good deal and and can trust her. I think in some homes that you'd be overdrawn. I know with Katie's parents, uh, I don't know, is that fine to share? Yeah, that's what I meant. Katie's mother was not the frugal one. She was very liberal spending, always overdrawn, always having to go borrow money from Rick. She worked at the post office, made good money, spent it super, super quickly. And and so there's no way that you could, you could, um, she could have the same Rick could have the same relationship with her that Mr. Farnell has with Mrs. Farnell. So, but anyway, you'd almost think that every salesperson should be fired because of all the good deals that they're giving everyone based on the way people talk. So you really do need to be sure you have a good deal, which comes from doing your research. If you're unfamiliar with the average prices of the item you're considering buying, then you're not really going to know whether you should make that purchase or keep looking. So wait that time to buy something. And when I, earlier I said, wait, you know, two weeks or four weeks. And this is one of the things that you can do, um, besides pray, as Francine said, is do your research. Spend those two or four weeks researching whatever you're thinking about buying to determine whether it's a good deal. Uh, Plenty of verses uh, support this. When there is no counsel, the people fail, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 11.14, also Proverbs 15.22 and 24.6. And uh, there's a lot of counselors available, and I'm not really joking, through the internet in that you can research. I got a, um, a new phone. I can tell you about this a little bit if you want. We switched from Xfinity, or we switched from Verizon to Xfinity to cut our bill in about half and add a, allowed us to add an extra line to have my mom on the, to share with my mom and everything. Well, anyway, some of our phones didn't switch over, so I had to go get a new phone. And this phone, when it first came out, this is their, this was the cheapest and most basic phone that Xfinity offered. And because of that, it was, uh, well, it was their cheapest phone. But the reason that it was their cheapest phone was because it came out some years ago. And I, if you looked at the price, you would think it's maybe perhaps a lame phone. When I went in the store and saw that it was their cheapest one, I had already done my research, though. So when I went in, I knew that it was a really good phone. But the reason it was cheap was because it came out a few years ago, not because it was a poor quality phone. In fact, when it came out, it received excellent reviews. And so if you... I would highly discourage you from ever buying many tech things new. And one of the reasons for that is when tech things are first introduced, what is going to be the case for some number of months? They're going to be really expensive. And what else? They have problems. They have to work out all the kinks in them. So it's, it's surprising how many people jump right on that first tech thing that's launched when there's going to be months or maybe even a couple of years, if you really want to get something that's in great shape, that's, tech, that's techie, wait some months or years down the road until it is actually, they've ironed out all the wrinkles with it and done all the updates and patches and fixed everything about it so you don't have to be one of that early, you know, almost like beta testing, working through all the frustrations. And so anyway, it was a real cheap phone, but when it came out year, some years ago, it was really, really well-reviewed, so I thought it was a good phone. So, but that just involved doing some research. So when I went in there, I knew that 
I was getting a good phone even if they probably thought that I was a cheapskate, which is fine for the Xfinity store to think that about me. Um, also, I'd recommend including your husband or your wife as you do research. Your spouse might not be an expert on the product, but the reason that I regularly, probably one of the most people, if you come to me for counseling and you're looking for direction, could be after church, if you're a married person, you probably know that very early on in that conversation, I'm going to ask you what your husband thinks, or I'm going to ask you what your wife thinks, because it's not just it's not just wives getting counsel from their husbands. I also expect that husbands will get counsel from their wives. And so very rarely will I talk to someone about direction for their life if they're married and not ask them what their spouse thinks about that or how their spouse feels. And, I meant, and so the reason I'm saying that is I expect that God is going to direct us or lead us in our lives through our spouse. And so if you're a young person and you're not married yet and you're still under your parents' authority, then I'm also probably going to ask you what your parents think not because I think your parents are always going to make the right decision, but because I believe God wants to work through your parents to direct you. Rare is the child who will honor their parents, submit to their parents, and find themselves outside God's will. Let me just say this one more time. Rare is the child who will submit to their parents, honor their parents, and find themselves outside God's will. If you're a child and you put yourself on your parents' authority— I'm not saying, I'm not giving you an absolute guarantee here. Think of this like a proverb, like more of a generality. But you can feel much safer then, and you can be confident that God is going to work through your submission or your appreciation of the, your parents' authority in your life. And what's the opposite of this? Rare is the situation when children take themselves outside their parents' will or authority, and things go well with them. Unless, unless your parents are asking you to sin or do something that's completely in conflict with God's word, rare is the instance when you should go against their counsel and expect to go well. To remain, basically as a child, to remain in God's will is to be in your parents' will. I mean, it's the one, one pro, Ephesians 6 said, it's the command that offers a long life or has a promise, a blessing associated with it. So if you're a child and you're thinking about buying something and you ask me, then, and you say, hey, Pastor Scott, listen, you talk about finances in Sunday school, I'm considering buying this. I'm probably going to ask you what your parents think about you, you buying that and trust that God wants to direct you through them. Any thoughts or observations or questions or anything? Yes. Um, I got upset with my dad when I was 19. Uh huh. And I left home. I got upset with the boss later on. And I quit that job and set up a precedent. I could have talked to my dad and worked it out. Same thing with my those things that you make decisions of when you're in the home, those things set precedent for how you make decisions later on. I really appreciated you sharing that. I almost wish everyone could hear you. Could you guys hear him in the back? Okay. Would you stand up and share that with everyone? When I was 19... And introduce yourself. When I was 19, <laughs> I was upset with my dad and left home. Years later, I got upset with my boss and I quit the job. Really, if I had talked to my dad, I could have worked it out. I got communication issues. Same thing with my, with my boss. So really, what, those decisions you make when you're a child in a home, they set you up as a precedent for how you make decisions after you leave the home. I appreciate you sharing that. And you look back as those were instances you regret or wish you'd handled. And thank you for having the humility to share that with everyone. You didn't introduce yourself, though. And everyone's wondering who you are. I know, but they don't know. Oh. <laughs> Good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I, I'm Richard. I, uh, my daughter and her husband and two grandchildren live in Kalama. So when I come up to visit from Portland, I stop in here to worship. Yes. I know. Well, I thought you'd talk about our relationship. You know? I thought you'd mention our friendship. Oh, well. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I became I appreciated you, Richard, because I remember at the Valentine's retreat when you stood up and sang a song to your wife. So, do you want to stand up again and sing that to? <laughs> <laughs> that, 
<laughs> yeah, but boy, that was really that was really touching. Watch, and then after your wife passed away, I just felt blessed that I had seen you sing that to her and had been able to witness that. Thanks for giving me a little window into your relationship there, Pastor Nathan. Good. Yep. Other thoughts? Ed, nice and loudly. Talk over your shoulders so everyone can hear, please. Some of the best counsel we ever got was from an unsaved father-in-law. God uses that too when you're willing to be under the authority. Yeah. Well, that's one of the principles in 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 3 is God is discussing submission to authority that's non-Christian. 1 Peter 2 and 3 is about submission to authority that's not Christian, because that's a very, I'm not, this, I don't think this, Katie can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, almost every marriage conference, I get the question about a wife submitting to a non-Christian husband, and it's kind of surprising to get that question, because 1 Peter 3, 1, rare is the question I get asked that's so black and white that I can answer that quickly, and that's one of them, where 1 Peter 3, 1 commands submission to an, a, a husband who does not obey the word, which is Peter's way of referring to an unsaved husband. And so we never. And so in my life, I'm under the authority of the elders, or I expect God to work. We're staying in our house. We're not selling it. We were on the fence about selling it. We're probably leaning towards selling it, actually. And the elders said, "We don't think you should do this." And so, and I was glad. I didn't. There was. I didn't. Uh, wasn't frustrated about that, huh? Are they unsaved? Uh, yeah, and they're unsaved. So that's an example of submission, though. <laughs> Francine said that. That was Francine's joke. <laughs> I can't believe you just said that. I wouldn't have said that. Anyway, let's, let's move on. That was an uncharacteristic. <laughs> That's a side of, I got to be honest, that was a side of Francine I like, though. I like that, to say that. So anyway, we're leaning towards selling. I thought that, that was what's best, but then, you know, we trust God to direct us to the elders. I do. And so that, they said, hey, we don't think you should do this. So then we felt, felt like, no, well, God wants us to stay there and build for, for mom and our uh, in addition, which is the plan now. So anyway, we should all be looking for the authority in our lives to be directed uh, through that. To go outside of that can be very, uh, you know, problematic, and there's no point. My point mentioning myself was simply that even as a lead pastor, you don't find yourself above having authority or counselors in your life. So uh, definitely times Katie has counseled me or, or I've involved her in decisions on purchases um, a few years ago, so I'll talk about the van situation, an example from our lives. So I, I knew I needed a van that would be, um, you know, dependable. I, I know a story about someone, I'm not going to tell you whether I'm talking about Andrew Chris or not, who had, who had van broke down. He was able to fix it on the side of the road, and so I knew that I couldn't do that. So I need something that, was, that could run better, that I wouldn't break down and, and on the side of the road have to try to fix it. You know, my, my family stuck there for days, and so... But I didn't know a good price on a van, and I don't really know anything about vans. And so I started this spreadsheet with all these vans with these different criteria, like number of miles, year was built, um, reviews that the van had received. And then I would get the, and then I looked up probably between 50 to 70 vans that became available, and I would put them all in this spreadsheet. And I had this formula where, and I don't even know that it was the best formula necessarily, but it would kind of give each van a, a rating or a review based on those factors that I thought were important, the van's review, the miles, the years, and so forth. <clears throat> and so most of the vans would come up, and there was, you know, they'd have about the same rating, and then there was just this one van that just kind of shot right off the chart. You know, you almost had to look a second time and see that whether that was correct, the, the numbers for it. And I contacted this guy, and it, it came on the, on the Internet and I, I think I contacted the guy like really soon after, I mean, I'm not joking, like a few minutes after it was posted. And I said, is this, is this all correct? Am I seeing the correct information for this van? And he said, yes, it is. And I said, okay, well, I'd, I'd like to buy it. And so that's why Katie said I didn't, it seemed like I didn't really wait two weeks. Well, I'd been waiting a few weeks, but I didn't really wait two weeks after I saw that deal because then after doing all the research, I was really confident that if this guy wasn't lying to me, that this was a really good deal on a van. And so it was available on the coast. And so... I said, okay, I'll drive out there. I just want to know you're not going to sell it out from under me if someone else calls with a better offer. 
And he says, no, if, you want to, if you'll pay this amount for it, then I'll sell it to you for that amount. And so we drive out there, and he says, boy, you contacted me really quickly. I just listed it. And I said, well, I thought it was a good deal. And he said, well, I, th- I think it is too. And he was selling it for someone else. So there's a restaurant owner. Any guesses the name of the restaurant? The Rue. Yeah, that's the name of the restaurant. So it had that logo on the side, and the restaurant owner never used it. And I don't know if he had a lot of money or what, but he just told his friend, I just want you to get rid of this van for me. And so the, the friend who didn't know much about vans, and I, I kind of think he didn't either, maybe he wouldn't have sold it for that price, he, he said, I think it's a good deal because of the number of people who have called me since then to try to buy it. And I told him I was holding it for you. And so I said, okay, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And, and then, you know, but I wouldn't have known how much a van what a good deal for a van would be unless I had those weeks of, you know, trying to create a spreadsheet and keep track of stuff like that. And the same with, with um, you know, housing prices. It was we're selling mom's house and entertaining ours and buying another one to move into. You can develop a real familiarity with housing prices and what a good deal is or isn't by doing all that kind of research. So any thoughts or any examples of times people did something like that that they'd want to share? All right. Okay, the next, the fourth piece of advice I want to give you is I want to encourage you to let God's commands serve as fleeces to direct your spending. Let me say one more time. So number four, let God's commands serve as fleeces or litmus tests for you when making purchases, or, or let your obedience to God's commands direct you is kind of what I'm saying. And this can help not just with purchases, but with most things in life. Many times we... Uh, are trying to determine what to do. And if we will strive to obey the commands God has given us in his word, the path will usually become clear to us. Let me say that one more time. When we're trying to determine whether, you know, to go left or right, do this or do that, if we will commit to obeying the commands or principles in scripture, then God's will or direction for us can often become very clear. But it usually takes an amount of um, patience again, and prayer and labor in God's word to see what God's word says about this situation, and somewhat to search our hearts. Because, for example, when it comes to purchases, all of the verses that deal with covetousness should come into play when considering purchases. So, if we're talking about purchases and then determining when or if to buy something, by being governed by God's word. One of the most, um, one of the strongest governing principles regarding purchases or determining when to purchase something are all of the verses about covetousness. Now, to determine whether we're covetous or not requires that we do what? Look where? Not do our, not do our research out there, but where? Yeah, I kind of research our hearts, do the research inwardly, not put a bunch of stuff on an Excel spreadsheet but examine our hearts and determine whether we're being covetous or not. Now, it's not to say, I mean, like for me, with the van, um, I don't think I was covetous. I hope not. We had, if you remember the van before that, it just didn't fit my family. So I didn't think it was an issue of covetousness. I just thought it was an issue of we have a seven-person van, and now we have, you know, eight people in our family, or, so we need a bigger van. And so, but many times, there have been other times where I'd, I'd be ashamed to admit that I was being covetous, you know, and, and I, so then that's a good indication that I shouldn't make that purchase. So if we can use the commands in God's word, we will have enough principles to direct our decisions, not just with purchases, but most things in life, but, but it takes an amount of time and prayer and patience to consider what God's word says about what we're considering doing, and we usually can't make that decision really quickly. <clears throat> now, most of, the, most of the problems that we've had in life, me personally, whether I say we, my family, or I would guess all of us, when you have really gotten yourself in trouble, was it, was it when you tried to do what's best and got, and got it wrong, or was it when you pretty clearly went against what God's Word said? Yeah, r- rarely do we, I, I feel like God honors, like 1 Samuel 2.30, God says, I will honor those who honor me, and I feel like if we're trying to honor God, even if we don't, even if we make a bad decision, if we don't do what's best, I still think God appreciates or recognizes that we were trying to honor him. And he's not going to, I don't think we're going to be disciplined because of that. The times we get disciplined, Pastor Nathan, he, he preached on Hebrews 12 the other week, the times we do find ourselves in Hebrews 12 
being disciplined by a father who loves his children, is when we go against that plain, clear teaching of God's Word. Not when we're striving, but, you know, and it's the same with our children. If you see your children trying, you see your children doing your best, their best, you're not going to punish them when they make, when they make a mistake. It's just going to be the times that they deliberately disobey you or go against you. So let's consider something specific, <clears throat> which is close, um, which was uh, applicable in our lives recently, which is buying, buying a house. Uh, so the, when we wanted to buy my uh, house before we bought my parents' house, you could say, well, the Bible doesn't tell you what house to buy. Like people, like recently we had the Nuthetic Counseling, or excuse me, we had ACBC Counseling, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. It was previously called NANC, National Association of Nuthetic Counselors. And Nuthetic means admonish. And so I mentioned this in the sermon. NANC or ACBC has the same goal, which is to counsel people through God's word or the belief that the answers to man's problems are found in God's Word, which I'm thrilled there's an organization that believes that and wants to put out resources and training for us. Now, one of the, one of the arguments, or let's say questions, legitimately people can have about ACBC or NANC or Nuthetic Counseling is, well, what about when you have a decision that God's Word doesn't apply to? Like, for example, what college to attend? What person... You know, or the, the Bible doesn't tell you specifically what house to buy, what person to marry, what college to attend, or what job to take. No, the Bible doesn't tell you. You can't go to chapter, you know, 13 of, and verse 4, and, and there's the address of the house you're supposed to buy. But there are enough principles that help us make the right decisions in these situations that we face. But let's just kind of zoom in here, <clears throat> zoom in on purchasing a house, because that's something that all of us either have faced or will face. And there's not just one right answer. I'd like to hear some thoughts. What are some verses or principles in Scripture you can look to that will apply to the purchase of a home? What verses or principles in Scripture can you think about that will help you determine the right house to buy or not buy? Richard? Okay, so... Uh, okay. And okay. Okay, so I think that verse where I mentioned a few principles, you said your job, right? The, the location that that house is to your job and then your financial situation. Very good. Why? Okay, now, and here's how these principles kind of build on themselves. If you're a family man, why would the location of your house to your job be important? I know that sounds kind of vague, but if you're a husband or a father, why should you be looking at how close your home is to your job. Pastor Nathan? Yes, yeah, someone who was driving. <laughs> yeah. Now, what Pastor Nathan probably would not have the humility to tell you was, so you say, well, why did he have a, he had a house? That, he had a house that he wanted close to his church. So Pastor Nathan chose to put his house close to his church, but that put him further away from his job. But anyway, you can't always have both, right? Unless you can get your church to uproot and move to your job or the other way around or something. But he can, so he is commuting from Longview, but he chose to be close to his church, which is another principle. So Hebrews 10, 25, this is the first one that I have listed. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now that verse about gathering for worship or gathering with other believers might not initially sound like it has that much to do with the purchase of a home. But as soon as you start thinking about God wanting you to gather with other believers, then suddenly the location of your home becomes very significant because it's going to determine how easily you can assemble with believers or how close you are to your church body. There's lots of people I've liked, uh, even a gentleman, uh, you might see him at church, his, name, his name's Trevor uh, with his wife Maureen, and they're commuting, and I met with him the other, the other week for a couple hours in my office. I really like him. He's on the road, you know, almost an hour to get to church here. And so selfishly, I'd love to say, boy, it'd be really great for us to become your church family. But there's another part of me that's questioning whether that's God's will and how well involved he could be here. So maybe it's just a season that he's involved here before he finds a local church that allows him to be a little, a little bit more involved. But so, so that verse right there, Hebrews 10, 25, which sounds initially like it would not have much application to the purchase of a home, actually has considerable application to the purchase of a home because then you're going to be looking at the location of that home. What are some other verses or commands or principles? Uh, 
Okay, well, I mentioned earlier covetousness. This, is a, this could be a little difficult one, but you have to look at that home and say, why do I want this home? Do I want this home? Because what, what would be a competing command with covetousness? Let's say 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what, should, what does a husband or father know that he must do? Provide a home for his family. And so he's trying to provide a home while also trying to ensure that he doesn't covet. And so there's a little bit of tension there, but you're saying, okay, is this home going to allow me to provide for my family? And is it, is it large enough, spacious enough, nice enough that I care for them? But is it, am I buying more than I need? Is it more extravagant or luxurious because I'm coveting? And so there can be a little bit of tension there, but as we try to apply, bring these principles or verses to bear on the situation, I'm very convinced that God does. It's almost like, you know, the, the clouds start to part and then you can see God's path or his will if we will put that time in laboring to determine what he would have us do. It does become clear, I think. Um, parents commanded to spend time with and to raise their children, Deuteronomy 6, and then um, you shall teach God's words diligently to your children. Older women should admonish young women to love their children. Fathers should bring up their children in the admonition of the Lord, Deuteronomy 6, 7, Titus 3 and 4, and then Ephesians 6. And so because we're commanded to spend time with our children, it's not to say that a husband would never commute or would never find himself on the road for some length of time, but it is to say that we have to take into consideration that that's time away from our family. Uh, that's time that we can't be with our wife or can't be with our children. And so it's just something that has, to, a principle that has to be applied to that situation. So we would ask things like, is this home close enough to a local church that I'll be able to be involved, that I'll be able to attend regularly? Am I going to be able to take care, good care of my family with this home or not? Is this home going to decrease my time on the road to and from work, thereby giving me more time with my kids? And just as these questions help us determine whether our reasons for buying a home are godly or ungodly, we can also consider whether our motivation, and this is when the examination of our heart comes into play. As we examine our heart, what are things that we would want to see if they are in our heart associated with that purchase? We already mentioned one of them, covetousness. That would be a sin we would, we would want to ensure is not in our heart associated with this home. What else, though? Francine? Yeah, that's a, very good. Yeah. Yeah, that's, here's what I had in my notes. Pride. We want a new house. It makes us feel better about ourselves. Improve our self-image. Improve our reputation. Then suddenly, and it's not to say people can't have nice houses or large houses, especially if they have a lot of kids or something, but then instead of having our identity in Christ, our identity is in this purchase right? Our identity is bound up. I feel good about who I am, not because Christ has redeemed me and I've become a son or daughter of God, but I feel good about who I am because when you walk into my house, it's really nice and people drive by and they see it and they know that home belongs to me and so they respect me more and if I have people over, then they'll, they'll be impressed with the, with the size of my house. And so suddenly that's, that's, a pride, that's a pride issue. So we want to examine our hearts to see if there'd be any pride in there. Entitlement. Are we feeling entitled? So maybe we've worked hard for years, we've made many sacrifices, uh, we've been faithful in the workplace, we've been diligent with our finances, it left us in a good position. But here's the thing, if you've had a home that has uh, worked for you or your family for a long time, why is it you would want a new home? Well, hopefully it's for a good reason, maybe it puts you in a better situation or position, gives you more time with your family, but you'd want to be careful that it's not entitlement that it's not like, well, I should have something. If you, the home you have has been good for you, I, I don't, do I want something else because I just want something that's bigger or better or fancier? Now, maybe you want something that's bigger or better because your family has grown and you, you've had a bunch of kids in a bed, you know, seven kids in a bedroom or something like that. And so you need something not to mention any names or anything. And so then you want something that's a little roomier or something like that. So these are just ways we need to examine our hearts. Any other thoughts or observations? Uh, Pastor Nathan? I was just thinking it would be for those who feel burdened to use it, whatever the purchase is for a home to use it, it would be for, for instance, hospitality. Wanting something that would be able to be accommodating for people to come over, whether it's Bible studies or uh, have a get together for neighbors and things like that. Yep. Yeah, how can this house be used for God's glory? Yep, all of a sudden. Any other though
Uh, if you're a young person, I, I'm always, when I, sometimes I'll notice this, young people will, I'll ask them where they live, and they'll tell me they still live with their parents, but they actually kind of tell me in like, like they're almost ashamed a little bit, and this is not a commentary on any children that don't live with their parents, and it's not a commentary, that, well, I guess it is kind of a commentary on children that do still live with their parents. I'm, I'm sad whenever children tell me they still live at home, because I'm impressed, actually. I think it says a lot about the parents. I think it says a lot about the children. And it's not to say par- children can't move out for some reason, but I, I try to reassure kids. They kind of put their head down. They're like, well, you know, especially a young man. Well, I still live with my parents. And I'm like, hey, I think that's great. It says a lot about your view of authority, that you're fine to still. It says the, uh, something about the way your parents have treated you and says something about your wisdom financially. I mean, I don't know what better way to be wise with your finances with your, when you're young than to stay with your parents and try to save up whatever you can, a nice nest egg to purchase that first house. And so, um, so I definitely think that has a lot of application. And I've tried to communicate that to my kids that I hope they feel like even the addition, you know, for my mom, we've talked, hey, this will hopefully be available to one of you down the road if, you, if that's attractive, if you would like that. So considering these verses about children obeying their parents. If parents would not want their children to buy something, I, I would think that it'd be, it'd be hard for me to believe that God would have them buy it. I just don't often think that God brings children in conflict with their parents. I don't think that God is going to say what he does about children obeying their parents and honoring them and then introduce something into children's lives that caused them to disobey or go against their parents. It's not to say that it can never happen. Obviously, I experienced a ton of hostility and division from my family when I left the Catholic Church. Part of it, much of it my fault for not being gentler in in my evangelism, but still there was no way that I was going to be able to leave the Catholic Church without there being an amount of hurt and disagreement with my parents. So sometimes it is it is necessary, but most of the time it seems to be God's pattern to work through parents to, to direct children. Uh, and then one more, which I'll talk about at a future time, I think debt. I think debt is really one of the biggest list, litmus tests or principles that we can apply to purchases that we actually tend not to. To look and see, which when I say debt, I'm basically saying to look and see whether we have the money to buy something, right? You'd almost think if we're considering buying something that one of the first or biggest principles we'd consider is whether we have the money for it. But that's a neglected principle simply because we live in a world or at least a country that has such a positive view of debt that that's a lower principle to many people, the issue of whether they have the money because they can just charge it, you know, or they can just pay someone back for years or even decades. But I think that as God's people, debt should be a major factor in determining whether, or a major litmus test or fleece for us in determining whether to buy something. We'll talk about that in another, another Sunday. So, you consider what God's word says about these things, debt, family, marriage, children, pride, covetousness, entitlement, selfishness, materialism, and the list could really go on. As soon as you look at what the Bible says about just those nine things, you're going to be able to make a good decision, I believe. You're going to be able, and not just regarding purchasing things, but most things in life, we will have the principles from God's word to direct us to, to find his will whether it's yes or no for that. Um, another example from our life was when we uh, were moving out of the parsonage and Pastor Nathan and Jill were moving in and we were going to get our, our own house. We are responsible for our own retirement, wanted to build equity. And so we moved out, but we wanted, we had a few, I'll just tell you the two fleeces or the two litmus tests that we had were basically um, debt and we wanted to honor my parents. So we wanted to remain uh, debt-free, and we wanted to honor my parents. So we thought, pretty much thought at that time that we might, might get a house with them. And so here's what happened. So you guys know my dad had Alzheimer's. I'll try to, try to make this kind of quick. I know some of you might know this story. But we had these two litmus tests, uh, remaining debt-free and then dad's Alzheimer's. And so we would go as a family, <clears throat> and we were looking for a place with in-law quarters. And we would look at a, a house, and, may, and there was at least two or three times when we would really like it, or our kids would really like the house. And, but dad, he just didn't, well, okay, so we were tested with debt because there was at least one house that was about $25,000 out of our reach. And I mentioned, the, I mentioned the price that was out of our reach because $25,000 is an amount that you can feel very comfortable sort of fudging on. And I'm not saying, uh, this is our conviction. We were convinced we shouldn't have any debt. I'm not necessarily saying you you have to put yourself in our position. But for us, when we began this little journey, we said, we believe God will have us remain debt-free. 
And so when we, we saw at least one house, and I remember it was really, we liked it, but it was $25,000 over the, the amount of money we had. And so it was really tempting to say, well, we could probably still do this anyway and then get this loan and then pay it off within you know, uh, you know, a couple years. But we thought, well, God doesn't want us to have debt, so we passed on that house. The other situation that was a little more, a little um, blurrier for us, I actually remember I called, I called Dave Zumstein to get his counsel on this. We, we'd look at a house and dad, my dad wouldn't like it for some reason. And why, why was it harder for us to want to honor my parents during that season? Because, yeah, because dad's Alzheimer's and it was kind of, it wasn't as bad, obviously, as it, uh, this was in 2000, when was this, Katie? Or 2018 then? Or when did you move into the parsonage? 2019. Okay, so two, two and a half years ago. So dad's Alzheimer's wasn't as bad, but he still wasn't thinking totally clearly. So dad wouldn't like a house, and then we'd be like, well, should we really pass on this house just because of something dad doesn't like when he's not, when he's not thinking totally clearly? But what I, and so that's when I called Dave for counsel, and, he, and Dave said, well, God can still give your dad peace about a house. You can still honor your dad. You don't have to do something. God can change your dad's heart, or God can um, give your dad peace about something. You don't have to dishonor him at this, at this stage of his life to buy something. And I, and I felt very, that bore witness to me. I thought, that's true. It, it's a, definitely not above God to give my dad an affection for a house if he wants us to buy it. And so in a scenario, so we kind of go through this for weeks, and it's kind of frustrating looking at these different houses, and, and dad doesn't like them, or it doesn't work out financially. And so then, after we kind of went through that over those weeks or months, then this scenario occurred where that house on the corner became available, the house that my parents moved into, and we, and mom liked it, but then the question was like, well, how does dad feel about it? And I still remember when mom came and said, well, dad actually said he likes the house, and I was like, wow, dad says he likes the house, you know, I can't believe this, and so I, so I thought, okay, I'll go down there, and I'll ask dad, I'll see what he thinks about this house, and, but I was kind of afraid that we were going to have the same conversation where dad, you know, gets kind of a little confused and says he doesn't like it for whatever reason, so I go down there, and I'm kind of anticipating that again. And I said, hey, Dad, what do you think about this house? And he goes, yeah, I really, I like it. I said, you're sure you like it? You really like, you know, this house? And he says, yes, I, I really like this house. I'd be glad to move into this with your mother. So then we moved, so we moved in, as you know, my parents' house. And then my parents moved into that um, blue house on the corner. And then I was just sitting with Mom this morning, and it worked out nicely. We sold that, built an addition for her. She said this morning we're talking uh, she has this little living room area while we try to build her addition, and, and, and she said, you know, it's really nice being around here. I was kind of lonely at the house without your father, and, and I, I said, well, you're not lonely here at our house, are you? And she said, no, I'm definitely, definitely not lonely here. <laughs> so it's, it's worked out nicely, but I feel like it kind of took trying to apply these litmus tests. That's the whole point. I don't really, not really thrilled talking about myself this much, but just trying to get some examples of applying litmus tests or principles that allowed God to direct us through them, which would be my encouragement for um, all of you as well. So, any thoughts or anything? All right, I want to conclude by bringing your attention to Christ himself, because as we kind of think about patience, as we think about entitlement, as we think about selfishness versus selflessness, I don't know that there's a much better demonstration, or there, actually there is no better demonstration of that than Christ himself. Do you remember, can anyone think of a time when someone, we're talking about entitlement. When did someone, or when was Jesus made to feel entitled? Who remembers? When was Jesus made to feel entitled? Who said it? Yeah. Listen to this. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you. Their hands shall bear you up, lest you dash. What was the devil basically doing with Christ when he's tempting him? He's making him feel entitled. If you're the son of God, you, it's almost, what's really interesting is you can contrast the way that Jonadab talked to Amnon with the way that the devil talked to Jesus. It's almost a prefiguring of the temptation in the wilderness when Jonadab says, hey, why are you the king's son becoming thinner day after day? And the devil says to Jesus, basically, hey, why are you the king's son becoming thinner day after day out here in the wilderness? If you want something to eat, you know, you should, you should have it. Jesus' self-denial. 
Just as Jonadab wanted to make Amnon feel entitled, the devil wanted to make Jesus feel entitled. If anyone could feel entitled, it was Jesus. As the Son of God, he should have had what he wanted. He should, have, he should not have had to go without. If there's anyone who shouldn't have to hunger, if there's anyone who shouldn't have to go 40 days and 40 nights without food, uh, if there's anyone who shouldn't have to endure that kind of temptation, then it would be Christ himself. He could have said no to any discomfort, but Philippians 2.8, it says he humbled himself he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, denied himself um, for us. And then I also think about patience. We're talking a lot about patience in this, this morning and the last Sunday, and the devil, he's tempting Jesus, and it reminds us of, of Esau. Matthew 4, 2, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So here's another interesting thing. As I kind of contrast Jonadab tempting Amnon, I kind of contrast Esau with Jacob, because Esau his God was his stomach. He wanted to eat, and he gave himself over to that temptation. Well, we know Jesus wanted to eat. The scriptures tell us that he was hungry. The plan wasn't for Jesus to die in the wilderness. The plan was for Jesus to die on a cross, not starve to death. And the, real, the devil's real temptation was this. You don't have to be patient. You don't have to wait. You can go ahead and eat now. And then the difference between Jesus and Amnon and between Jesus and um, Esau is the resisting the temptation to be entitled, to be patient, denying themselves, um, not being impulsive. So, when I, so I would just say when you need encouragement, think about Christ, what he denied, what he resisted, keep our, keeping our eyes set on him, even, even when it comes to purchasing stuff, even when it comes to our finances. He's our premier example. Any questions or observations before we close? Vicki, nice and loudly. disregard it we're not we're not your children I do too, because, well, and I, I don't think it's a suspicion that you have. It says children obey, but we all honor. So I don't, my mom doesn't have authority over me, but I'm expected to honor her. Right. And so even like yesterday, the guy comes over with the plans for her and she's kind of, and I said, mom, it's here. How, how, what do you want here? You know, is Daisy's doghouse too small for you? Did you want something bigger? You know, I said, joking. <laughs> I'm like, this is your addition, mom, whatever. What do you want here? You know, it's, we want you to be happy. And so, yeah, you never stop honoring your parents. And apparently for me, I never stopped joking with my mom either, but yeah, I, I think children obey, but always honor is the expectation. Thanks for sharing that. But yeah, that's interesting that regarding the last days, when it talks about the wickedness that's going to be seen and you kind of think the, the very worst things, it talks about children disobeying their parents. I mean, it's, it's uh, incredibly important to God, so much so that ab rebellious children who would not obey, it was a punishable by death offense. There's no record of it happening, but just to remember that fact, that in the nation of Israel, God saw it as such a threat for children to be rebellious against their parents that that was, it was a, as punishable by death as murder or adultery was. So, yeah. Any other thoughts or anything? Uh, Patty? Yeah, 
So at some point, you move from obeying to honoring. Yes. Yes. But if they're still, their aim is to honor the Lord. Yes. I may not be fully there. Yes. Yes, but hopefully that's the case. If they go against your counsel, that in their hearts they still are seeking God's best. Yeah, God's will. Yeah. All right, good. Well, uh, all right, well, let me go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this time and pray you help us to be good stewards of our finances. And, but I, really, this was a nice morning to go beyond just our finances to discuss how your will can be revealed to us as we apply the principles in Scripture. Help us all to do so, Lord. Help us to discern your will as we look to the commands, not necessarily feelings. We don't want to be governed by feelings and emotions. So often people tell me, well, this, you know, this is how I felt. Uh, I, God told me this, and then I said, well, what do you mean he told you that? Well, that's how I feel. But really, we need to be governed by Scripture and directed by it, Lord. So let that be the case for us. Help us to find those principles that apply to the decisions we make. Go with us into the worship hour now, uh, worship service to follow, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.